This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Come with me now to the year 1505 where we find a 21-year-old Martin Luther as he was walking through a thunderstorm and a lightning bolt struck right by him. And he prayed to the patron saint of the miners, to Saint Anne, and he prayed this. He said, if you save me from imminent death, I will sell all of my possessions and enter the monastery as a monk. Now, in the years past, after that thunderstorm conversion, as it's called, Luther taught the scriptures in universities all the while hating the God of the Bible. And he struggled deeply. Now, Luther was not a perfect man by anyone's standards, not by the standards of the day, or nor especially by ours. But Luther, what he is, though, is evidence that God can still draw Straight lines with crooked sticks. And he struggled deeply with this question. How can a holy God accept sinners? How can we be saved? How can I be saved? And that question haunted Luther for years after that thunderstorm conversion. Until about 1514 where at university he was lecturing. He was teaching people the Psalms and the book of Romans, and he finally realized as he read Romans 1:17, as he finally it dawned on him that the only way we can be made right with God, the only way that the world is to be made right, is based on the finished work of Christ. He understood and began to teach that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and this shattered his world. And it actually set the trajectory for all of Western civilization. But you see, beneath this question of how we can be made right with God, beneath it is the question of authority. The question in his mind wasn't only how we can be saved, but it's who says how we can be saved. Says, says who? What is the authority that we should look to to say what is true? Mark Thompson, he says this, there can be no doubt, however, that the issue of scripture's authority and function in the churches and in the lives of individual Christians was the particular preoccupation of all the chief figures of the Reformation. And for Luther, and for the Reformers, and for us, our final authority, our highest authority are the scriptures. Now, this is not to deny that God gives wisdom to the righteous and the unrighteous, those inside the church and those outside the church. This is not to deny common grace and the way that God blesses all. But it is to say that our highest authority is never tradition, although we pay attention to it. It is never community, although we need to read the Bible in community. All these things stand below Scripture and should never be on par with it. Sola Scriptura. And the scriptures were for the reformers. Again, their final authority. This is what 2 Timothy 3.16 says. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Bible is sufficient. It is enough for us 
As we order our lives, listen, as we order our lives under the lordship of Christ, the scriptures are sufficient. Hebrew 4, 12 says this, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit and of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We never stand above the Bible, but we live under it. And so often we can take our cues from our culture, what is in vogue at the moment around us, and we judge the scriptures by our times. But my desire and what Luther's desire was that we would evaluate the times according to the scriptures. And fundamental to this is a, 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 a not believing in the goodness of who God is. Psalm 1830 says this, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. The scriptures, the Bible, the word of God is our final authority. Now, at the time in the 16th century Roman Catholic Church, you would believe something like this. That if you were to die, you would go to a place called purgatory. It's not your in-laws, it's purgatory. And the, 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 the purpose of purgatory was that you would have to pay off the rest of your debt that you owe to God for the life that you lived. And there was this famous saying by someone who uh, uh, um, combated against Martin Luther. His name was Johann Tetzel. He said this, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, well, the soul from purgatory springs. And this, there was this idea that you could buy salvation. And a coffer was a place where you would collect money. And what, basically what they were saying is if you died, you would have your family or your friends go to the church and pay money. And then therefore you would be released from purgatory and go into paradise. They were selling salvation. They were selling indulgences at the time. And Luther would scream with his 95 thesis Nailed to the door of Wittenberg on October 31st, 1517, Halloween for some of us. No, absolutely not. And the reason why we could know this is because culture or councils were not the final authority, but scripture was. Martin Luther said this. He said, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by evident reason, for I can believe neither Pope nor councils alone, as it is clear that they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves. I consider myself conquered by the scriptures adduced by me. And my conscience is captive to the word of God. Now the Reformation isn't over. There was this term coined by St. Augustine back in the 5th century that said that the church is forever reforming. The scriptures are always critiquing our belief the scriptures are always fixing our practice. And so, Anchor, may we be a people who are held captive to the word of God. May we be a people whose imaginations are soaked by the scriptures. You know, uh, uh, this, uh, a 19th century preacher by the name of Charles Spurgeon, he said this, British preacher, he said, we should be such a people that if we were to be cut we would bleed Bible. We would bleed Bible. And so it's only through the Bible, it's only through sola scriptura, as our highest authority, being illumined by the Spirit of God, that we could finally ask, now listen, if the scriptures are authoritative, the question still remains then, 
what do they say about how we can be saved? And so as Luther rediscovered the scriptures to be authoritative, and as he searched them, uh, there was one question that he was trying to answer this whole time. One question, and that question was, how can we be saved? How can we be saved? And as he searched the scriptures, he found the answer. And that answer was, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And I want to talk to you about the first one of these, grace alone, sola gratia. What does that mean? What does it mean to be saved by grace alone? And so as Luther read the scriptures, he read uh, this verse from Ephesians, Ephesians 2, 8-9. And it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But what is grace? Well, in the past, grace has been defined as unmerited favor. Unmerited favor, being given something that you don't deserve. But there's another definition for grace, and it is God's goodness to those who deserve only punishment. God's goodness to those who deserve only punishment. And what this passage from Ephesians is saying is that we are saved by grace alone and nothing else. We've received God's goodness to us in the person of Jesus. God's goodness to us in the person of Jesus and nothing else. See, what the the Bible teaches is that we are all sinful people. We're all stained by sin, that we have rebelled against God and run the other way to Him, and there is nothing that we can do within ourselves to change our situation and bring ourselves back to God. Nothing we could do to change our own situation. And notice what this passage says, the most beautiful thing about grace alone. It is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Grace is the gift of God, the most beautiful message of the Reformation. Sola gratia. Grace has been given to us as a gift, God's goodness in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And here's what Martin Luther said about grace back in the 16th century. He said, works never merit heaven. Heaven is conferred purely of grace. Works never merit heaven. Heaven is conferred purely of grace. As Arnaldo said at the time of the Reformation, Luther was wrestling with this. How can we be saved? How do we earn our way to God? And this wasn't just an intellectual argument for Luther. This was something that he'd wrestled with his whole life. This was real for him. He wasn't just writing an essay. This was the deepest struggle of his soul. How can we be saved? And as he looked at the scriptures, he was convinced that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that is a gift of God. But just like Luther and just like the church back in the 16th century, I feel like we often slip into the trap, I know I do, of thinking that we need to contribute to gain our way to God, thinking that we need to offer something back to God. I want you to imagine um, that there are three men in a plane. It sounds like the start of a joke, it's not. Three men in a plane. One of them is an Olympic swimmer, the best swimmer in the world. One of them is just your average swimmer, took lessons as a kid and he can swim fine. And the third is a man who never learned to swim. And then the plane crashes down over the ocean. They're left in the middle of nowhere with no sight of land. So their only option is trying to swim to safety. And the man who never learned to swim fails immediately. The other man who'd who'd learned to swim but he wasn't very good got a little bit further, but before long he has to fail too. And the Olympic swimmer, the third man, far better than the others, the best in the world, keeps swimming and swimming, but before long the huge waves get him and the sun beats down and he has to give up as well. 
And in the end, there was nothing that any of these people could do to earn their way to salvation. And that's the position that we were in. Nothing that any of us could do to contribute to our salvation, no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, no matter what skills we have, no matter how we compare ourselves to other people, and no matter how righteous we think we are, there is nothing that we can contribute to our own salvation. Uh, Here's what Paul says in the book of Romans. He says, but if it is by grace, he's talking of salvation, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. It's no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. What Paul is saying is that if we think we can contribute even the smallest part to our salvation, then we're deluding ourselves. There's nothing that we can contribute whatsoever to the salvation that is a gift by the grace of God. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I think one of the most beautiful things about this message of grace is that grace doesn't discriminate. Grace doesn't discriminate based on who we are. Every swimmer gets saved by the rescue chopper, no matter who they are and what they've done. Every one of us can be saved because of God's goodness to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So what what does this mean for us now? This means that we don't have to earn our way to God in any way. It means that we can come before Him in our vulnerability and in our brokenness and in our sin in complete honesty and accept the grace that's offered to us in Jesus. It means that if there is any person, uh, anyone here that feels that they're too far from God, that the things that I've done could never be forgiven, the message of grace alone says that that is not true at all. Every person can be saved by God's grace. So as as we close, let me remind you of the truth that Luther discovered and rediscovered at the Reformation. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. How are we saved? How are we saved? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. A sola fide, or faith alone, is uh, the third of the five statements that we're looking at uh, this morning, and it emerged from the Reformation as a way of summarizing what the reformers believed to be true about the Christian faith. But what is faith? What is faith? Well, Martin Luther, the man in question, said that faith is that which brings the Holy Spirit through the merits of Christ. Faith is that which brings the Holy Spirit through the merits of Christ. You see, Jesus taught uh, in John chapter 3 that to, be, to enter the kingdom of God, one must be born again. One must be spiritually regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And Luther here is saying that this transformation, this rebirth happens by faith. That as people place their faith in God And the finished work of Jesus on the cross who came to die for sinful humanity, they can be saved and made new creations. They can be born again by faith. And this notion that it is faith alone that saves was one that Luther wrestled with personally. Uh, he, He even wrote this about himself, his struggle with assurance before God, describing himself as 
a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. And I wonder this morning if there's anyone in the room who has felt that before, that as you've considered your standing before God and how you measure up to His perfection, your conscience has been troubled, or as Luther put it, deeply disturbed. But after toiling with anguish in the Scriptures, Luther received a revelation from God in the pages of Romans chapter 1. It said, For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. You see, Luther had discovered this beautiful truth from the pages of Scripture that receiving the righteousness of God being declared holy, righteous, in good standing with God, only comes by faith. It's not earned. You can't work for it. But God, on the basis of Christ's finished work on the cross, is pleased to declare sinful people righteous. And this is received by faith. The Apostle Paul uh, affirms this idea again later in Romans In chapter 3, verse 28, where he says, For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And you see, this revelation not only transformed Luther's personal assurance in his personal faith, but it transformed his ministry. And it fueled the Reformation as the Reformers spoke out against this works-based line of thinking and teaching and belief that had pervaded the early church and said that God's righteousness was to be attained through works and through earning. As people thought that they could earn their way to heaven, they believed that their sin could be forgiven or the punishment for their guilt removed if they just did the right religious things, if they adhered to the right sacraments. Some even purchased these indulgences that we've already heard about this morning, which were remissions or removers of debt, providing partial or full removal for the punishment of sins at the right price. I wonder if you can imagine showing up to the factory on a Sunday morning, walking through these doors and coming here to buy forgiveness from Matt or from Brad or from Arnaldo. I'd like to have one indulgence, please. Will that be for the partial or the full removal of sin? And, and will you be paying by cash or card? We've also got push pay, be pay. It'd be ludicrous. But as God's word tells us, his righteousness cannot be earned. It's graciously given as a gift to sinners in need and is received by faith. A number of years ago, I was playing basketball and I blew out my knee. I tore my ACL, my MCL, and I needed a major operation. And at that time, I had faith that my doctor would be able to help me. 
I trusted that he could provide me with the solution that I most needed at that time. You see, I didn't have faith in myself because I knew that I was powerless in this situation. There was nothing I could do. There was nothing I could muster for within myself. There were no works that I could perform to fix my knee. I was powerless. But my faith was in him because I knew he was the one with the power. He was the one who had the means to fix what was broken in me. And all I could do, all I had to do, was have faith in him and receive his help. And in the same way, we don't receive God's righteousness by earning it. We don't receive it by working for it. There's nothing that we can muster up within ourselves to pay for it. We're powerless to sin We have nothing to contribute, but we receive it by faith. And God's word tells us that even this faith in and of itself isn't a work, but even this faith is a gift from God as well. A gift that we receive as we trust in him and we recognize that he and he alone on the basis of Jesus' perfect work has the power to fix what is broken in us. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The fourth one that we're looking at is Solus Christus, Christ alone. Christ alone is central to all the others, especially grace alone and faith alone. To be saved by grace alone is to receive God's undeserved gift in Jesus. And to be saved through faith alone is to respond to that gift of grace in Jesus by trusting in Jesus. Therefore, Christ alone is the linchpin that is central, critical, foundational, fundamental to all of the others. Because he is the means by which we are saved and he is the object of our faith. The phrase Jesus alone was in response to, as we've heard earlier on, ecclesiastical abuse, institutional corruption and theological doctrinal error. It was the attempt to recover, preserve and teach that which was authentic biblical Christianity. The first thing is that historical issue. 500 years ago, the 16th century Roman Catholic Church taught a Jesus and or a Jesus plus kind of gospel or theology. The question wasn't for them who Jesus was or what he came to do, but whether or not Jesus alone was enough. Back then, some things were happening in the church, such as indulgences. We've heard a little bit about that. People paying the priest or the pope in order for their sins to be pardoned. Or there was the praying to the saints or Mary, appealing, hoping to people who were respected and revered that somehow they would mediate with God on their behalf to win them their favour their forgiveness. 
In contrast, Luther and the Reformers, they believed and they taught a Jesus-only kind of gospel, that he is all we have, he is all we need. Jesus alone is enough, he's sufficient for our salvation. It certainly attracts attention and it raises certain objections in our culture today. It'd be foolish to ignore these and I just want to mention a couple of them. My hope is not to provide you with an exhaustive list or a defence to everyone in each of them, but it's helpful to know. One response to the Reformation's claim is that it's too exclusive. Proponents of this view would argue that ignores the fact that we live in a pluralistic society where different people have different views, different beliefs. They would argue that it goes against and it is a threat to peace, to tolerance, to unity in our society, especially if there are other religious groups who make similar exclusive claims. Another response to this claim is that it is no more true no more equally valid than any other claim that other religious groups might make. The view here is that of universalism, that everyone believes in something, it may be different, we're all heading on the same road, but the final destination is the same. Another response to this claim is that there's no such thing as absolute truth. It's all relative, the view of relativism where what is true for you is true for you and what is true for me is true for me. Neither of us can impose our beliefs on one another or accept, expect each other to believe in the same things because individually, morally, ethically, historically, what, might, what you may believe in is only true for you. Two weeks ago, I was sitting with two chaplains being interviewed for a part-time role in a chaplaincy uh, job at jail and I was surprised because they were in their clerical collars and they had a big wooden cross around the neck. And they said to me, you can get this role as long as you don't talk to the people inside on the other side of the wall about Jesus. You can talk to the people who come from the same cultural background as you because what is traditional, what is historical, what is familiar to them is the gospel. What they failed to realise is that had it not been for the London Missionary Society people to come to places like the Pacific and to share the gospel would still be running around like Vikings in the Pacific, decorated in body art. Thank God that we have rugby because now we have a reason to hit people legally. <laughs> Tim Keller says that no matter what the objection is, that's been formed, that's been made, but there's always an attempt to say to others that my view is better. And in the end, Every claim is exclusive anyway. And so the claim that Jesus alone is no more or no less exclusive than any other claim is not any different. And so what do we do with this? And this is the personal challenge for us. One of Jesus' disciples, named Peter, said in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no one under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Here, Peter's making the exclusive and the emphatic claim that there's no other person by whom we can be saved but Jesus. How does he reach this conclusion? First, we can't be saved, we can't save ourselves. Romans 3, verse 10 says, There is no one righteous, not one. 
Verse 23 in that same chapter, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says that what we really need to know, what we do know, sorry, is that no one is perfect. Everyone is sinful. And so if sin is within us, help needs to come from outside of us. That's the first thing that we need to know, that we can't save ourselves. From birth, by nature, we're sinful. Secondly, good works can't save us. I'm not going to spend too much time on this because it's already been covered. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 9, you've already heard. Not by good works, but by God's grace. No matter how hard we try, no matter how noble our efforts might be, uh, how our efforts might be best in the way that we attempt them or interpret them, but there is always a taint of sin there somewhere. That's what the reformers like Luther believe. Thirdly, the law can't save us. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1, the law is only a shadow of the good things that is coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. The law does three things. Points out sin, tells us what's the consequences of sin. But in addition, we're told here, it points us to what is ultimately the solution to sin. It cannot deal with sin permanently, but it does point to the one who can save us from sin. Fourthly, only Jesus can save us. Of course, there's that famous verse in John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever should believe will not perish but have eternal life. Later on in chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Peter's exclusive claim in Acts is founded on what Jesus once said. And the basis of what Jesus said is upon the death and the resurrection of what he came to do. The basis for Peter's claim in Acts of that chapter earlier on is the healing of a crippled man. The difference between the Christian faith and every other world religion is that with the Christian faith, God found man in Jesus. With every other man-made religion, it's man's attempt to find God. Fifth and last, Jesus' sacrifice alone satisfies completely and eternally. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27, second part, He, Jesus, sacrificed for their sins and for all when he offered himself. Jesus' death for sinners took place once and once only. There is no need for priests, no need for anyone to perform endless sacrifices. Jesus' finished work is done. Any attempt at adding to it, improving it, is really taken away from it. Because by implication, what you're saying is that what Jesus did is not enough. Being saved in Jesus alone means we don't have to perform anymore. There is peace. Being saved in Jesus means we don't have to live with uncertainty anymore. There is complete assurance. Being saved in Jesus means that those of us who have put our faith in him, there's no more pride, no more arrogance. We're not self-made. Total humility and gratitude. Well, the last catch cry of the Reformation was soli Dio Gloria, to the glory of God alone. And that really is what the Reformation was all about at its very heart. And this is the motto that I've been living by since I was 19. 
I was so captured by this phrase that I first read as I was reading Don Carson's book, A Call to Spiritual Reformation. And he signed off on the bottom of his introduction, Don Carson, Soli Dea Gloria. I had no idea what that meant. But when I understood it, it captured me so much that I went and got it tattooed as a tramp stamp across my lower back. <laughs> the things you do. But the Reformation was... And the Christian faith is a thoroughly God-centered faith. And I want to suggest to you that there is scarcely a more important message for the church today than this one. Everything is all about the glory of God. And so I hate to tell you, but it's not about you. It's not about you. You are not the center of God's purposes. He is. It's all about Him. God's glory and not your self-fulfillment is the ultimate goal of the gospel. Why? Well, because God does absolutely everything for His glory. He created this world, this earth, the universe for His glory. Psalm 19 verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. He created people, a part of His creation. For his glory. Isaiah 43 7 says that all that he formed and made, he did so for his glory. In fact, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is for his glory. This is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. He says, In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Three times that phrase is repeated in the opening chapter of Ephesians. To the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. You see, God has chosen you to the praise of his glory. He's given you an inheritance to the praise of His glory. He has sealed you with His promised Holy Spirit to the praise of His glory. Salvation from beginning to end is all about what God has done for His glory, His worth, His praise, His majesty, His honor. It's all about Him. You see, everything we have and we are in Christ, it both comes from God and then rebounds back to God. In glory. Before God saved you for your sake, He saved you for His, for His glory. Now, to be fair, both of those things are true, but the order is crucially important because the order is a difference between a human centered faith and one that is thoroughly centered on God. It's all about Him. You might think, well, doesn't that make God somewhat egocentric if it's all about Him? Why does it have to be all about God? I guess it's the same question as saying, why does our universe revolve around the sun? Well, it's because the sun has the largest gravitational pull. It's the biggest object. And the same is true of God. There is no one more worthy of worship. There is no one more deserving of honor. There is no one who deserves glory more than God because of who He is. He is the creator. He is the one who has made all things. He is the one who has given his son. 
He's the one who has raised him from the dead. He is the one who has called us to himself. It's all about him. You know, Johann Sebastian Bach, that German composer throughout the Baroque period, was so captured by this phrase, Soli Dea Gloria, that he wrote it on the top and the bottom of every manuscript of sheet music that he ever composed. And he put the initials S-D-G, Soli Dea Gloria. He says, I play the notes as they are written, but it is God who makes the music. That was his driving heart. And in fact, it's the thing that drives God, his own glory. And the question is, is it the thing that drives you? Is it the thing that drives us? Because in the end, it's all about him. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you this morning. As we've taken this journey through history and seen what happened in the hand of one man as he nailed a piece of paper to that church door in Wittenberg 500 years ago. God, such a a radical change that we have reaped the blessing and fruit of. We thank you for these truths. We thank you for these truths, Father, that you alone have the authority in your word that we are saved by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, that this in the end is all about you. We pray that that would be true of our church, that the legacy that we leave would be one that is thoroughly God-centered, gospel-focused. And we ask it in Jesus' strong and powerful name. Amen.